and didn't know anybody who was uh, in the movie business, uh, much less a writer. So, uh, but I did know somebody in a neighboring town whose father went to the moon. So it was far more likely to have a career being an astronaut and going to the moon than it was to be a writer in Hollywood. And I'm not saying that, that I don't, couldn't use some instruction because I could, but I'm going to have to instruct myself. I'm going to have to read as many screenplays as I can, watch as many movies as I can. I, uh, I decided that as much as I kind of preferred living in New York, I thought it'd be better for me to be in LA because I thought in New York, I'm going to have so many friends to go out and do things with, I'm not going to get work done. So I was looking for a more Spartan existence right. in a strange way, which doesn't sound like the way you would describe Los Angeles, but, but for me it was because I didn't know anyone. Sometimes you read a really great script, but you're not inside it. And, and if you're not inside it, you should not direct it because you're going to be waking up at 4 a.m. every day for, you know, for many months, and it's a year and a half of your life, usually, uh, that you're going to dedicate to this. And you're going to make, everybody makes mistakes every day. You know, we think of, you know, directors being perfect, but nobody's perfect. You make mistakes every day. Hey there. Welcome to the fourth episode of A Leg Up. My name is Adam Faze, and this is the show about making it in Hollywood, hosted by someone trying to do just that. Two weeks ago, we released episode two, which featured an interview with writer-director John Lee Hancock. Today's episode features part two of that interview, and while part one focused mainly on how he got to where he is today, part two will focus mainly on his advice for you as a filmmaker. Here's what he had to say. And what were your parents saying this whole time? They were really great because they had paid for law school, and so it had been very easy for them to say, what are you doing? You know, when I told them that I was thinking about, you know, leaving the practice of law and becoming a writer, like me, they didn't know anybody who was a writer. They didn't know anything about the film business. Um, but my dad, they were, they were both, um, they were both uh, public school teachers. Um, and my dad told me, he said, well, he goes, you've always been a hard worker. So if you're going to take that chance, now would be the time to take it. And I thought that was really incredibly noble of him to take that because I know probably when the doors were closed and I wasn't in the house they were going oh this one I hope this works out for him it's gonna break my heart if he puts himself out there and 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 fails or whatever but my dad also said well the good news is you can always come back and practice law so it's it's not you know it's not a bad yeah. it's not a bad safety net uh, I had no intention of doing that once I left you know I I really you know and I'd report back oh it's going great it's going great because even if I wasn't making money, I saw progress. My writing was getting better. Um, I was directing theater. Um, at one point, I directed a little straight-to-video movie called Via Con Dios, which uh, it was at a time when straight-to-video didn't mean the negative, didn't have the negative connotation. It was at a time when all of a sudden video stores popped up, and there were empty shelves, and people loved to rent movies. And so they needed movies. And so there was a company in Burbank, a little mom and pop outfit, that essentially did just that. Made very inexpensive mm -hmm. movies and never showed them in theaters and just sold them to video stores. So I did one of those on a, I don't, can't remember what the budget was. It was not very much money at all. And when, you know, the dolly broke the first day and I go, well, do we get a new dolly? I go, nope. So from now on, we're on sticks. And we were shooting on short ends. 
um, back in a time when you know you would say film in a refrigerator, you go, gosh, we've got you know 200 feet here on this. This is fantastic. You know, we're gonna save this. So my refrigerator was filled with film, um, and so that was a learning experience. Um, you know, I'm I'm, I'm kind of glad in many ways nobody can see it because it's fraught with terrible mistakes and also, um, you know, the the fact that. I didn't feel like I had much support, but I did meet uh, some good people through that. Um, you know, a couple of actors that, that I've put in movies and things like that. So it, it all it all it all goes to in the same direction, which is learning, getting better, uh, and challenging yourself. And at what point did you do Hard Time Romance? That's oh, that's the one. They changed okay. the name. Yeah. yeah, my name was Viaquandias, and then when it went to video, there was suddenly Hard Time Romance, and I went, oh, that's a bad title uh, but I like mine better but they thought well if I can do this they're going to think it's you know it's in Spanish I was like okay but it was that it was just that mm-hmm. kind of thing I don't I, I really don't hold anything against those people they gave me a shot even though the thing was the deal was they were going to pay me a, a paltry amount for the script and I said well I'd love to direct it too and they said okay you can direct it but we're not paying you to direct it so in other words they got a you know mm-hmm. they they said, what the hell, who cares? We don't, he, he'll work for free. And I did work for free as a director on that. So, I mean, they may have paid some housing. We were in Las Cruces, New Mexico, but I, I don't think I got paid to direct it. I think I just got paid for the script and they made that all-inclusive. Yet, so. And there's this huge studio system. I think because of that, indie film is really rising right now. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, at what point do studios, do you think, pay attention to younger talent? I mean, I know especially with you know, companies like Marvel, they're now hiring you know, younger directors. And they, they, they have, actually there are a lot of young directors and first time directors maybe who have come from commercials or something and have a strong visual eye that they are willing to hire for their biggest movies. They'd almost prefer to have somebody like that because their, their take on it is, this is director proof. And that's, that's probably going too far to say that, but what I'm saying is, the studio is saying we've got the latest superhero movie, um, the brand is set, we're gonna hire a young creative director that we think is gonna be do a great job, but we're gonna tell him or her what to shoot. We're gonna go here. We're gonna give you one of our biggest brands. So we're, the, we're in control here. Uh, so they've done, the studios have probably, man, it's, it's unbelievable, you know, how many different movies I've come in and helped out on just writing and whatever. That have first-time directors, very talent, very talented, but figuring out. And I go, and I would say, you. I said you've just been given a budget that is greater than all my movies put together. The budget of this movie is greater than all the budgets of my movies that I've directed. And and with that comes an obligation that goes beyond. It's hard to do that. It doesn't make it easier. It makes it harder, because you've got now you've got 27 people in your kitchen, who are looking at every single little thing you do. And talking about it and arguing about it, does this diminish the brand in any way to have him look like this? He looks sad in this scene. Is that okay? Uh, Just you hear all the little whispers, and that gets in the way of something being truly unique. Because I think when you've got a filmmaker with a strong voice, that becomes the voice of the film. It does. I mean, you can whether a movie is successful or not. It's it's really it's really Yes, you you know you need a great script, um, but it's really you know it's it's all 
funneled through the director and it's you know his or her stamp is on that movie and it, it takes several movies before you look at it sometimes where you can go I see the stuff that this filmmaker is working with I, I see where their heart is I see what interests them I mean like we talked about with Wes Anderson I I see the trajectory of their art in a strange way so I think that, that that's certainly the case but I mean independent films that that mean they're the fact that you can make a movie and it's less expensive than it used to be uh, means there are a lot more movies. Also means there are a lot more bad movies. Yeah. Um, it also means that there's a whole lot of competition to say get your movie into Sundance, where you know yeah. it, the 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 I mean Sundance is fantastic. I think it was like nine thousand films were submitted in the feature film section for you know for for how many how many screenings like three hundred yeah hundred and fifty it was yeah. one there was there was a number like that few years back that let's say, I'm just gonna throw numbers, but the percentages won't be too far yeah. off, that there were nine, you know, let's say 5,000 submissions uh, for 100 screenings and two got sold. So out of 5,000, yeah. the, 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 the goal is to get your movie out there and to get distribution for your yeah. movie so people can actually see it beyond just having a screening at Sundance. It's great to have a screening at Sundance. Yeah. It puts you in an elite company. But then it's incredibly elite to have someone go, yeah, and I'm actually going to pay money to distribute yeah, this and put awesome. it out. It is, it is. And, and there's a lot of stuff that gets left behind. I mean, you get, also with scripts, people can't get, can't get discouraged because you have all these different screenwriting competitions, whether you're trying to get into the Sundance Writers Lab or the Nichols Fellowship or, you know, or the, the Austin, you know, the Austin Film Festival screenplays. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of these different really, really great places that do spend the time to read your screenplays and, and, and that helps. You go, hey, I just won first prize at the Austin Film Festival for drama or whatever. That can help me get an agent. It's great. But I also know a case of, of you know, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think Mike Rich, not the rookie, but a prior script of his that got made into a movie, Finding Forrester, it uh, didn't make it past the first round mm -hmm. at uh, like the Austin Film Festival. And he was so discouraged, he goes, well, I suck. And he had already, you know, sent it into the Nichols Fellowship, and then he was a finalist there, which gave him money too, you know. So he went, well, and you go, well, you know what? One's not true, and one's not false. It depends on who's reading it and what yeah. audience, you know, the script is given in a strange way as a reader. So you have to kind of keep keep the faith about that. You, know? you think someone like Steven Spielberg could exist in this version of Hollywood, you know, making these big budget original films, or do you think? Studios just wouldn't take the, the big bet. Well, the thing is, is that it's it's certainly changed. I, Steven Spielberg can do it now because of his yeah. success, and and you know, and he's made money on his films. But there's no doubt that it's a lot harder to write or get a film made that's a truly original piece. And by that, I mean made up out of somebody's head, um, because what they want is it takes millions and millions of dollars to create awareness. Right about a movie. Just awareness. Yeah. Not a desire to see. That's a different thing. Yeah. I don't care but you're aware of it. Even if you and that's hate what Disney's doing all the, you know, remakes and absolutely. There's built in awareness. So right up the bat from a marketing standpoint, you're saving tens yeah. of millions of dollars because awareness is already there. They know the story. Um, whether and whether that comes from a best selling book or a best selling comic book 
or it's a sequel to a movie that you've already done, or it's a remake of a movie that's already been done, that awareness is there and they realize they're saving a lot of money in terms of marketing it and it gives it a better chance. Because right. once the first, the first hurdle is awareness, there's a lot of movies that come out and there's no awareness for them. They can't get anybody to get aware of them because they've never heard it or the title's clunky. Or... And that's if you're spending tens of millions of dollars. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's uh, so that's why the studio the studios abdicated adult drama several years back. They just decided. I mean, because the studios in the seventies were the ones that were making, you know, the Hal Ashby films yeah. and things like this. They were adult dramas. They were fascinating movies. They were great, and and they were the in, they yeah they were the independent movies of today. Back then, the B movies were the the monster movies yeah. and things like that. And now it's completely switched. And so the independent films are the Harold Mods and uh, you know, and Five Easy Pieces and uh, you know the Deer Hunter, and different movies that were more studio movies back then. So it's flipped. And then along the way, they just decided that if you're the only thing we care about is 15 year old boys and girls. Yeah, that's good. We're going to put 80 percent of our money that we're going to make movies with into that arena. What do they want to see? And let's do that. And let's it's become you know it's become all action heroes, superheroes. Um, young adult books that have a brand, whether it's Twilight or whatever, that they you know that they sell to teenage girls, and uh, and 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 because they because they correctly looked at it and they said, adults with kids uh, don't go to the movies that much. And then along the way, they started you know people used to stay home and, and watch, so yeah. they saw the domestic their domestic uh, proceeds going down, and. Then you know cable TV and you know pay per view and things like that stepped in and said, "Well, if you're not going to do adult drama, we're very happy yeah. to, and we'll call it The Sopranos, and you know, and we'll call it Breaking Bad, and we'll call it these things." Um, and they've been wildly successful. So that's why a lot of people, a lot of people, in my age and age range and you know in terms of their career. Uh, have have said I'm going I'm going to go do that I'm going to go try to set something up at HBO I mean I've got a, a project that I've set up there that's it's, but it's an eight part miniseries but it's still it's exciting to have that opportunity to do something that you just couldn't get made as a movie not because it doesn't have merit it's just yeah. because they go well it's it's for, you've made a movie for old people and by old people they mean yeah. over the age of 25 and you think TV is a good place to want to be right now you, yeah you more people should aim for TV instead of film? If you're, I mean, the thing is, what you do is, you, you, if you're, it depends on what you're doing. I mean, if you're a, if you're a, a storyteller and, 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 and want to tell stories and, and you like long form like that, um, then absolutely. Because a writer is king in television. I mean, yeah. directors in television, um, you come in and, and, and by the time a show's going, you have directors that come in that haven't directed an episode. Everybody on that crew knows more about how they make the yeah. show than the director who's coming in. And the DP will help and whatever. And that's taking nothing away from the director's job in that. It's just they're going to be gone. Yeah. And then somebody else, usually the writer producer, is going to be cutting their episode and finishing their episode for them. So uh, it's a great place for, for writers. I mean, I think it's also a great place for directors to, to, you know, to live as well. I mean, there are some of these guys that... That that you know could go off and do movies if they wanted to, but they you know they're they're kind of on staff directors in a weird way. Like they're gonna you know I'll do 
I'm going to do four Boardwalk Empires this year, and a, this and this, and it's fascinating. Yeah, am I doing a Breaking Bad Boardwalk Empire? And this, you go, that's a pretty good world to live in. So, uh, but I think I think television is incredibly seductive. I mean, Scott Frank has said many times to me, if you and I were starting out today, we'd be. Yeah. That's where we would be. You know, we we started off loving movies and got involved and had some success in the movie business. Doesn't make it any easier to get movies made. It's hard to get movies yeah. made. The stuff that I want to do, it's really hard to get made. I mean, it takes forever to get a movie made, if and if if you're even successful. Do you think LA is still the hub of the business, or is it moving, or is it coming back? Mm, yes and no. Um, it's the brain trust of the business, um, with some of it being in New York as well. But really, the brain trust is here, but the work is done elsewhere because of tax credits and rebates. Anything that's going to come back is the new tax credits, or it's kind of it's it, right now they have. I mean, they they continue to re up that, which I, I congratulate them on. Saving Mr. Banks was able to recoup some money for when we had to shoot here. We shot it all in California, except for a couple of days in London. But um, it's not one. It's a lottery system, and so you're not guaranteed right. anything. Um, two, it's not as much as New Mexico, Louisiana, and Georgia give you. Um, like for instance, on a on a you know a twenty five million dollar movie, you're getting four million dollars back in Georgia, which at that price is is a great percentage. It's a difference between getting the movie made and not. Yeah. Um, that's why they're. 18 movies filming in Atlanta right now or something, which is crazy. And the thing is, what happens, you get a lot of people, I know a lot of people from here, they worked here forever, uh, who, you know, they've moved to Atlanta because I can work nonstop there. Um, there's still a lot of TV that's done here, and, and part of that is because they, you know, they, they have the stages here and it's all, all set up, but also because of, the, because of the lottery and the way it's set up so that TV shows that go somewhere else to shoot can be lured back. So by design, some of these TV shows will go, we're gonna go shoot in Boston for one year and then we're gonna get lured back to LA where we get the rebates and the credits. So we'll take the credits in Boston and we're gonna take them again here. So there's a lot of television that's you know that's shot here. Also, there's just more work now than ever, which is, it's just a, it's been hard, it's been, it's hard to cast movies now because you know, uh, Captain America, they look at their cast list and they go, they've got 25 actors that I would love to hire one of them, but they're yeah. all busy for the next, you know, how many months yeah. because it's this big juggernaut of a movie and I've got a little movie and I, there's nobody available. Yeah. There's tons of people that just aren't available. So there's lots of work out there because there's more television and there's more internet stuff than ever. And so, you know, from a writing, directing, acting standpoint, there are a lot more avenues to success, which is great. Which is great. I mean, you know, it's 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 still entertainment is still thriving. I mean, piracy is a real issue. There's no doubt about it. And it's it's a little. I mean, going back to it's a generational thing where you you know you talk to you talk to people, you know, teenagers and and people in their twenties and stuff, and they kind of came around through you know music piracy and you know, Napster and everything yeah. like that. So there's this, there's this idea somehow that all entertainment should be free. Um, and it's very, uh, you know, they think of it as very, uh, you know, forward thinking and, and, and truly noble and socialistic and stuff. And it's like, well, not, you know, not, not so much. What about the people that have to create it? Because honestly, if you took away all proceeds from people to create it, would people still create? Yes, they would. 
would a lot of people create a whole lot less because they'd have to have a real job? Yeah, they would. You know, um, it's it's just one of those things. Nobody can you know nobody can live on nothing. You'd have to have a job to support your art. Um, so it's 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 a little strange to me how you know it's the weirdest thing in the world when you'll have somebody come up and say, "I saw you, you know, I saw your, I finally saw your movie. It was so good. Oh, thanks, thanks. You didn't run on HBO. No, I downloaded it. Just saying, they're essentially saying I took money out yeah. of your pocket. You should tell me thank you for that. You know, and then you go, wow. And, and but the fact that they don't even think about it that yeah. way, it's out there. It's on the internet, so you just take it. You know, and thankfully now, I mean, no one's going to get prosecuted for that kind of thing. But people that have set up the pirate bays yeah, and exactly. all that kind of stuff. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they slowly go after them. But, you know, if it's, if it's set in North Korea, it's a little hard. I mean, on some of these movies, they, they look at it and they say, we've lost, we lost 50% of our potential revenue based on, based on piracy. You know, I mean, I, there's, a, there's a running joke I have with friends of mine in different parts of the world that they'll send me copies of my movie before it comes out. <laughs> like, I've got a bunch of... Chinese versions of you know different movies, mm. and they go, "Hey, just saw your movie," you know. <laughs> and the thing is, is that it would have been from some screening somewhere yeah. or whatever that somebody had videotaped themselves, and so somebody gets up and gets popcorn in the middle of it, and or, and whatever, you know. But they would have it was it's kind of amazing, you know, how that, how that happens, and 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 kind of sad too. Yeah, but I think also. You know, I think it's, that's another thing that has to change. I think studios are going to have to find a way to make people want to buy it. You know? Yeah. Because even though we should do it, it that's not going to make people do it. No, know? no, no. No, so, and that goes to the adaptation of theater yeah. saying, yeah, you could you could rip it offline yeah. and it's going to be a crappy looking version uh, and this is a much better version. Yeah. Uh, that said, I mean, we, we have slowly trained people so that the screen has changed yeah. to, I'm watching the movie, hold on. And you go, wow, okay, but, but because we can train our eyes to, to, to like anything if it's done very, very slowly, yeah. you know, and, and you get used to it. I mean, how many people the first time they had, you know, their, their first phone were like, it's so small, and then it becomes more and more normal yeah. to you. And, and, and you can't say, well, that's stupid for them to do that, because they're doing it, and yeah. you better take advantage of it. You better look at that revenue stream as well. You better look at ways that people can watch movies or television shows however they want Which to watch. What they're trying to do on YouTube, you know. And yeah. And Hulu and all, you know, yeah, all these Netflix. different, all these, yeah, Netflix. I mean, and that's another thing that's happening. If you look at Netflix, when it first started, it was like, well, this is really cool. They deliver, you know, they, they deliver this. I've got a list of movies I want to see and they deliver them to the, to the door and I put the other ones yeah. back in. It's so easy. And then, then they got into the business of, you know, creating content, and you've got House of Cards, and and lots of people are doing this. You know, I mean, they, and they will continue to do it um, because it just brings it's one it's branding, and it just you know, I don't know it's just another revenue source. So that uh, you know, if they can control and own it, it's not just a piece of a rental for them. It's you know, it's it's real real money, and then you get and you get brand new you know you get like uh, AMC. They, you know, that was essentially showed old movies. That's yeah. what they did. And it had value because you could watch old movies there. And then, you know, they decide they're going to get into the business of creating their own content. 
And so it doesn't, and, Mad, and then Mad Men comes along that, you know, I think had been, had been around for 10 years or something, yeah. you know, trying to shop at to networks and, and trying, trying different yeah. places. And everybody realized that it had, that everybody liked it yeah. and it had value. They just weren't willing to buy it. And so finally AMC did. That's a huge thing. Yeah, it's a huge thing. And the, the more important point, though, in a weird way, is that well, the most important point is that it became culturally uh, in the zeitgeist almost immediately. Before, you know, as soon as it started airing, you would see uh, fashion designers and layouts in the New York Times Magazine, and it was Mad Men, Mad Men, yeah. Mad Men. So they had entered the zeitgeist. Um, and what that became for them, even though it was a, an expensive show, and they were brand new starting out, they were smart and said, it can, it can, it can operate as a loss leader for us. We don't have to make yeah. money on it. Because what it does is it's branding. It is, it's, you know, it, it's, it's just like a billboard. You pay to have a billboard up. Yeah. Well, what am I making from that? I'm just paying. I'm not getting anything from that, you know? And they go, no, you're getting something because people yeah. are reading it and then people are then purchasing your products. And so it became more and more where people found it on the dial, you know, or on their yeah. remote. They go, no, AMC, I gotta watch Mad Men. What other shows do they have? And so other people recognized the, the brilliance of that and started doing it. And so, you know, Netflix is now a very different Netflix than several years yeah. ago. And do you think the studio system is somehow benefiting indie film? Mm -hmm. At the Oscars last year, I think mm -hmm. only one film nominated for mm -hmm. was a studio film. Mm -hmm. No, what their decision was, they said, That's we want all the money. We don't, you know, we honestly, if someone says you can make a lot of money or make a good film, they're you know they're publicly traded enterprises. Yeah. They are they're in the business of making money. They're always going to choose money, and that's what they are. They're financial beasts, you know. And that's not to say they can't be feeling and caring and smart. And you know, and Alan Horn's a perfect yeah. example. I mean, a guy with taste. He loves making good movies. I do think that he and some other guys are people that would say there are some movies that we could make money on that I would rather have this other movie that we didn't do as well on, because it's just a better yeah. movie, because they also look at the brand. They go, this is good for our brand. If we break even on this movie, right. this is good for our brand, because it's saying a quality movie came from this company, and that has value that you can't put on a spreadsheet. Right. So they do have those kind of conversations. They're not just, um, you know, they're not just Lex Luthor guys in suits behind studio yeah. walls or anything like that. I mean, they, they really do want their movies to be good, they do. They are publicly traded, and they do have these. You know, they're buying up Marvel. Yeah. And they're buying, and they're doing more Star, Star Wars. Wars. And you know, and like another, another, you know, another friend of mine, a guy who's come up from the indie ranks, is Ryan Johnson. And oh, yeah. yeah, you know, and he's a fantastic well. filmmaker. And uh, and and so you look at that, and you go, wow. So who did they go to? You know, JJ did first right. one, but I mean, who did they go to? this really, really important yeah. thing, would they go to, it went to Ryan Johnson to do it. And he's doing it. He's about, about to leave for London. He's been back and forth a bunch. Yeah. And, and by the way, it's in very good hands. That, that made me think, that is a really smart studio choice. Yeah. Because this guy's a great filmmaker, and he, he loves this franchise, and he knows this franchise well. Yeah. Uh, so he's, you know, he's a little bit of the geek for, the, for it, which they want. But he's also incredibly capable, and he has a unique voice. You know, and they're still going to protect the brand with it and everything. Right. And they're not going to let him, Take you know, do brand. do you know my dinner with Andre with Star Trek characters or anything like mm -hmm. that. Uh, but he loves the world and knows the world and knows it 
as well as they do what it wants to be. So I look at that and I go, well, that's a really interesting choice. You go from Looper to Star Wars, you know, uh, which is fantastic. Yeah. So there's, and, and you do see people, you know, testing the waters in the independent world and then signing on, sometimes to their chagrin, for some big, big movie. Yeah. You know, they go, here, you did this cute little movie, now you're going to do Spider-Man or whatever, you know. And, and, and yeah, you're going to get paid a hell of a lot of yeah. money, and it may be exactly what you wanted to do because you're a comic book geek or whatever, and you may even want to do another one. Mm -hmm. And then there are some people that, that do them, and they go, how did I get so far away from what I love? Yeah. I'm sitting in a cold stage looking at tons of green and blue screen, yeah. and, and actors worrying about if, they're, if they have a potch because their, their skin type leotard is too tight or yeah. something you know it's like it's got so far away from storytelling I'm just servicing a brand now and so some people can find a way to make that their own and do great with it and other people then kind of do that for a bit and then revert back to I want to just tell a story again you know and it's and there's people that go back and forth routinely from that you know one for one for you know one for them one for me I get paid. Some of the decisions I'm really curious about because you know Jurassic World that's coming out, that was directed by a guy that did Safety Not Guaranteed. That yeah. was the movie he did before yeah. that. And uh, there's a guy doing a spin-off of King Kong who directed Kings of Summer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I have to wonder on both sides, the studio and the filmmaker, what made them actually make that jump? That's a big jump. It's not like, you know, they were making yeah. a bigger budget movie. In, in the case of Jurassic, I think the guy, and I forget his name, but John Schwartzman actually shot that oh, movie. Okay. Yeah, it's one of the big movies. Yeah. He he first signed on, and he said, "Yeah, it's a it's a payday, so I can you know because you're gonna you know your next movie, you're not gonna pay me anything, are you?" And I go, "I probably not," you know. And and so he goes, "I'm gonna go make money." He told me uh, though that he he was quite impressed with the the guy, and uh, they did a rewrite on it and everything else, and he thought it just got better and better and better. There was a, a place in there where they they had to stop and hold, and then they got back to to shooting the movie, and John said. The movie's great. The movie's great fun. He was the right guy to do it. Um, and so I think they look at, they, they're looking for, when they look at something like Jurassic, they go, it's a big, it's a big wave. Yeah. We don't need you to create a wave. We need you to ride the wave that's already there and to ride it well. Um, and that's what, you know, directing a Jurassic movie is. It's a zillion moving parts. Right. It is a big enterprise. It is a massive wave. Um, and I'm not diminishing in any right. in any way the responsibility that goes along with ushering a big franchise along and not screwing it up um, and making it vital again. Um, but it sounds like it sounds like he did it. I mean, you know, by all accounts, it's it's really fun movie that works. So you know, good for him. But I think they look at it too and they go, who? I mean, who are we going to hire? Would we better we better have somebody? Because I think he was like a Jurassic Park nut too. Mm -hmm. Like, he knew more about Jurassic Park than Steven Spielberg did, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So they go, well, we've got the right guy because yeah. he understands what's in, the, in our Bible of this already. He gets it, and he's, and he's talented, and he has good ideas, and yeah, we can help him make a great movie. And they, and, and, you know, and they also are, in some ways, on some of these big movies, they look at them as, sometimes they look at these movies as almost actor-proof actor in a weird yeah. way. We don't want to spend a ton of money on a director and lead actors when the star of this movie is the brand right. or the monster or the whatever. Now, you know, now. It was like Transformers. 
Exactly. It's the model for transformers. Exactly. And then you had people that, you know, that came up through it and became, you know, bigger stars and things like that and got paid more for every one because it just kept breaking in dollars. But that was the model for it, that they, they look at it and they go, this is, you know, the real, we want to put the money on the screen because we don't think, we think people that are going to come and see Transformers are going to come and see it. No matter what. No matter, no matter what. And that was the highest gross movie last year. They know their audience. Yeah. You know, I haven't, I haven't seen them, but, yeah. you know, they weren't after me to begin with, so. And what, what do you think is the best way to stay relevant? Because you've had a, you know, long mm -hmm. career. I, the main thing I think is, is like every time, because I had, you know, you, you get, you acquire different skills along the way. Um, and the more you can keep those knives sharp, it'll, it allows you to be able to do a lot of different things. Um, and I've enjoyed that. I mean, you know, uh, Quentin Tarantino can, can just go, I'm going to, I'm going away for a year and a half and I'm writing this next movie, which is absolutely guaranteed to get made. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's his life, and that's a great life, um, you know, and I, and I enjoy and appreciate the fact that Quentin's able to do that. Um, for me, I can't say, um, I'm, I'm going to take a, a, a year to write my next thing at, for no money, and then the movie's going to get made, because what if it doesn't? Then all of a sudden I'm two years without getting, making yeah. any money, you know, and, and so I have, to, I have to stay relevant financially, too, or I lose my house, and... You know, you know, and school costs money and all that good stuff. But the way you end up doing it is, you know, sometimes I'll take a rewrite on something. Yeah. And I just kind of balance it out. And it's also, you exercise different muscles. I mean, you know, like doing a rewrite on Magnificent Seven, which I thoroughly enjoy. This, you know, that has kind of a popcorn aspect to yeah. it. And it's, but it's a Western and it's fun. And, you know, and I had a ball doing it. Um, or coming in and doing like production rewrites on something. Or... You know, I, I mean, I did a little thing on In the Heart of the Sea that Ron Howard right. directed. Um, and, and they were, yeah, and they were going to do, they wanted to do some some um, kind of reshoots and new scenes. You know, just because you look yeah. at a movie and a lot of times you go, gosh, the, the audience really loves this. Or the audience didn't was confused by this. Do we need to have something in that kind of explains it? And so Ron Howard had sent me the... The movie to see, he said, "Would you see the? Would you watch the movie for me?" And then we've and he's done that for me too. I mean, he's you know, you just I've got a movie. Would you look at it for me? And so we had a great discussion. He said, "Is there any way you have time to help me out? Just you know, for a couple of weeks, just come write and come to London and you know, with Chris Hemsworth and Brendan Gleeson and Ben Wishaw." And I was like, "That sounds like fun because Ron's the nicest guy in the world and really talented." So over there working with him in the editing room and writing scenes and talking about him and rewriting them and then on the set, it's a blast. I mean, you know, I'm on this, I mean, this, this cool movie with really cool people, talented people, and you know, you, you, you know, so you spend three weeks of your life on that. And it's great. It's great fun. I love that. Um, in addition to, you know, sometimes you're involved as a producer on something, you know, whether it's a TV thing or whatever, something you're just guiding scripts. So you're looking at it from a producerial standpoint a little bit more. Um, and you're also trying to stay stay relevant and I know that I go between movies because I don't I, I couldn't be a director that's just a director for hire that it just goes from one movie right. to the next the next the next for a variety of reasons. One, they take a lot out of you creatively and that probably is just the point to the fact that maybe I'm not skilled enough just to go from one to the next to the next. I have to kind of rev up for them. Two, kind of more importantly, you leave your normal life behind because chance, more often than not you're going to Atlanta 
or New Mexico or Louisiana and you're spending months and months away from your family. But the most important thing is it's, it's usually at least a year and a half of your life. On the blind side, it was four years of my life, you know, from the time I started writing it to the time it came out. So it better be something that you care about, you know. And so I try to be protective over the stuff I direct and say, boy, I really care about this. Because someday, you know, my son's going to look at me and say, yeah, I, I remember that movie. That was, that was when you missed every one of my lacrosse games. And that, it's heartbreaking. But the thing is, what I want from him from the movie is for him to look at it and go, the movie's great. And I know why you did yeah. that. Because I'm glad that that exists. You know? So I try to keep that in mind, too. You're just balancing different things, trying to stay relevant, trying to, you know, and then you, know, you read a script like The Founder, which was terrific. Um, uh, Rob Siegel, who wrote um, and directed Big Fan, I don't know if you ever right. saw that, um, with Patton Oswalt, and, and, he, and he wrote uh, The Wrestler. Darren Aronofsky film. So he's a terrific writer and I read it and I thought this is a, 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 a kind of a dark little great American tale and and I, yeah, I want to do it. It's going to be really hard given the budget but I, I want to do it. I want to try to figure this one out. So, you know, got Michael Keaton to play Ray Kroc and he'll be fantastic and then yeah. we're doing the rest of the casting now and we'll go off to Atlanta and struggle through the heat to get it made. And how do you stay patient because... A lot of these projects take 10, 15 years. You know, how do you stay active and wanting to do that same project? Well, you, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you'll have something that the years pass and somebody comes back to you and says, I think I've got an option for this now. I've got a, I've got, I have an, an idea of what we can do with this now. Yeah. And sometimes you might go, I'm not interested in that anymore. But recently there was one, it was a script I wrote, it was a book I found in a bookstore in the, in the, in the you know, the, the books for a dollar section or something. You know, I'm going around, I come across this book called Rads, written by Tom Bates. And I've always been interested in the 60s and the, in the college campus scene and, um, you know, and uh, COINTELPRO and all the FBI stuff and Kent State and what was happening at Cal, University of Wisconsin, the protests, Vietnam War, all that. I've been fascinated by it for a long time. Came across this book that I hadn't heard of and read the read the book and thought it was terrific and set it up at Warner Brothers to write, not to direct, just to, to write, because I wanted to write it. And I wrote a script that I think is really, really great. Uh, it was about the time of 9-11, so the idea of a somewhat sympathetic domestic terrorist wasn't exactly something that yeah. studios were bending over backwards to make. Uh, so it, was, it, it didn't have a prayer. It just kind of didn't have a prayer. Uh, and it sat there, and it's been a long time ago, obviously, and Mark Johnson, who's the producer on it, called me and he said, do you think we can, what do you think about that being long, longer form? What do you think about six or eight hours of that? Because he, he said, you always griped that there was so much story to tell that you had to really, really call it down. And I said, well, let me look at it and see. And I went back, reread the book, and started mapping it out, like in hour-long sections, just movements, kind of, like you would do music. And, and it came out, and I said, it's either six or eight, I'm not sure, but yeah, it works out nicely. And so we went in and pitched it and set it up at HBO. Um, and so after I finished, you know, directing this movie, I'm going to, you know, get to, to writing the Bible for that. And we'll see, you know, if I'm writing and directing them all, you know, um, uh, or splitting up the chores writing and splitting up the chores directing. I don't know yet, but it's something I'm fascinated by that it was from a long time ago. But back to your question, I think that uh, you kind of have to have a Zen attitude about it, 
um, and this is these are uptown problems. I realize because I've got different projects that I'm being right. paid for, but you know that you try to just keep them doing that. You they call it bicycling projects, where you've got you're working on projects at different stages. Um, right now, for instance, I'm about to head into prep on this movie, and I'm just finishing a draft of a book called Shadow Divers for Universal, which is which is a fantastic, real true story with adventure in it and stuff like that. But it's fantastic. So I've been able to prep, kind of begin pre-prep for the movie while I'm riding because there's such different exercises. Um, but you do have to carve out time for it. I'm going to spend the next three or four hours riding, and then I'm going to cut it off because I've got this yeah. conference call, and I'm going to deal with that. Those kind of things. So you you do you do all that, you know. Um, you just but you do have to stay very. You can't you can't let your emotions run too hot or cold. I found you kind of have to go. It's almost like when when you're casting a movie too. You'll you'll go, oh, if I get X to play this role, I'm gonna be so excited. This is gonna work out perfectly. And you heard from X's agent that X really likes it, and this is gonna work out. And then you get the call. It's like, well, you know what? There was another project that X was thinking about doing, and the dates, so he's not gonna be able to do it. And so it'd be really easy to go into Cavern of Love, and and I've and I've done that before. But then what you always find out is, every time the right person plays the role. Yeah. Just have to say the right person is gonna. We're gonna find the right person to play this role, and we're gonna look at it at the end, and everybody's gonna go. How could anybody else have played that role? You know, that's that's you know Sandy Bullock and yeah. and Blindside. So. And on the other hand, were there a lot of projects that you really pushed for doing and they got away? That I really tried to. Uh, that I went as a director and got away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't want to name the names, yeah, yeah. but there were there was one in particular. Uh, but I, they don't do that a lot because I mean it's pretty rare for me when I read a script I haven't written that I that I really yeah. want to go after. But it was one that was sent to me to read. It, you know, it wasn't they came to me. Um, but the the star was driving the bus in this one. The star of this particular movie. And he had become really, really taken with a uh, a certain foreign filmmaker to make this movie. And I thought, oh, you need an American filmmaker. This is such an American story. You need an American filmmaker. And then, you know, and but I went in and just pitched myself and talked about it. And and the star kind of wouldn't even... I'd done, I think what I had done, and maybe I'd done The Rookie and the Alamo after that point, I don't know. But the star kind of wouldn't even meet with me, not out of disrespect, but just because he was so fixated on this... Yeah. This other guy, you know, and I was like, okay, whatever. And it, and then the movie came out, and I go, I'd have done a better job. I mean, I know it, and because I know what I do, and I'll also be the first person to say, like I said, um, you should hire somebody else for this. There's somebody out there out there that will do a better job than I will on this, because I really and truly have to believe if I'm directing a movie that I'm the very best person for it, because that's the kind of confidence going in that you have to have, because every day is you know is just a battle. It's just trying to get everything done that you need to get done and you have to make snap decisions hundreds of times a day just based based on gut instinct and so if you're inside the movie and you feel like you have command over the movie and I don't mean command like bossing people around I mean command over the story and understanding it at a level that's several several layers deep then you're going to be okay you know for someone that really wants to have a start in this industry what do you say as a writer as a director as a writer, I mean, as a writer, I say, you know, write. 
obviously, you, you know, and, and know that, I mean, because people have come to me and they said, do you have any of your, I mean, Perfect World was probably my fifth script I'd written. Uh, and people have gone back, come to me and said, do you have any of those old scripts that you'd like to revive and get made? And at one point, you know, there was somebody who said, no, we, we, we desperately, you know, we want them. We're looking for material. And I went back and read them, and what I saw was a progression of talent that I was getting better and better and better and better. But even with someone willing to pay to option these old scripts, I said, nope, nope. And, and, and at the time, I thought, this is the greatest script of all time, until I wrote the next one. And then I thought, well, this is the greatest script of all time. I mean, you know, because you have to have that kind of level of excitement about your work, about, or why would you do it? You know, you're excited to finish a script and want people to read it. Um, but you just you, you you get better, you get better. So I would say, continue to write. Um, I, the other thing I would say for writers is, find a group of friends that truly have your best interest at heart, because and that's hard to do. It sounds like because we've got we've all got friends yeah. that you hang around with. Some of them, in their darkest moments, don't want you to succeed. They're happy for you and want you to be happy. They're not mean people. But there's a bit of Schadenfreude there. Like, I'm a writer too. How come they like his script better than mine? Uh, and you feel, you wouldn't say it, you would never say it out loud, but you're not sure that you're really helpful. And so trying to get a group of people that you can give your materials to, to read, that will tell you exactly what they truly believe and that really, really want you to succeed. And that means you have to take, and you don't have to, you, you don't have to do their notes, but you have to listen to their notes. Yeah. You have to. If you truly believe that they've they've hit ticked those two boxes, uh, and the other thing is, uh, if you continue to get a note from people, you probably need to address it. And if you find there are certain notes that you fight back against hard, you probably really need to address it because there's something in you that wants to keep it for a reason that has nothing to do with yeah. you know. Because if you were that confident in it, you wouldn't have to come back at him with like, oh, you don't get it. It's about, you know. So those are the two things for writers. For directors, um, it's a lot easier to do now than it used to be because, like I said, you don't have to store cans of short ends in your refrigerator and go beg at Panavision yeah. for a camera. You know, you can, you know, there's an iPhone movie at Sundance or whatever, you know. Um, so, you know, then direct. Find something to direct. You know, your friend's... And then it's also obviously you don't have to have a, you know, you don't have a camera, a movieola anymore with film and stuff. No, you cut it on your computer. Yeah. You download your footage and you cut it and you mix it and you, you can come up with something that looks really, really professional with music and everything else. So just do it. Just do it. And also, like everything else, do your, you know, do your homework. Watch movies. You know, I, I think some of the some of the greatest film school is just it's done less and less now in an interesting way. But I think especially when they first started doing it was um, you know director's tracks mm -hmm. you know after you've seen the movie twice right. that you love then just let it roll and listen to the director and writer or director and act whatever talk about it um, and there's a film school in that there's no doubt about it you know why they made certain choices just trying to get inside their heads um, from the professional side I have no clue you know if you want to be an agent I would say try to get a job at an agency um, agents sometimes go over to the to the studio world. If you want to be a producer, yeah. are you are you the kind of producer that's a financier, or are you a creative producer? Um, you know, and there's the old joke about a producer's best. You know, you know, you know what 
uh, of who a producer is. A producer is someone who's best friend's a writer. Um, you know, so you have to you have to get your hands on material and be attached to that material and then try to set it up. And it's a, I'm not diminishing the job at all because it's incredibly difficult because you have to go long periods of time yeah. where you're not getting paid. You're trying to get you paid and somebody else paid. You know, so it's a, that's hard too. But then, but then, there are lots of people that start out wanting to be filmmakers, wanting to be directors, let's say, who then go, you know what? I'm not quite cut out for that. But what I really love is editing. Mm-hmm. I found out that I like to be by myself. I don't mind that. I love that world. You know, or music editing, or I love to I love to do mixing. That's what I love. And there, and these are fantastic jobs. You know, they, they pay well and they have benefits and, you know, and medical and all those things. Um, and so they're, they're, just, they're just lots of ways in and people find different things that they truly love. Thanks for listening to the fourth episode of A Leg Up. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it five stars, subscribe to the podcast, share it with friends and family, and go to our website at www.hearealegup.com. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @hearealegup, and you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hearealegup. Special thanks to Aaron McClaskey, who did the original music for this podcast, uh, and stay tuned next week for a new episode of A Leg Up. Cheers. <laughs>